Thank you for tuning in to our sermon series here at Christ the King Anglican Church. You can visit us on our website at ctkalexandria.org or contact us via email at admin at ctkalexandria.org. Enjoy! A sermon series called This Is Us, looking at how the Bible describes us, that is, the church. We've talked about the church as being given honor by God, the church as a living sacrifice, and today the church as children of God. You can find on page 11 some sermon notes as well as the passage from Galatians. Galatians, as a letter, like all letters, has a recipient. Now, some parts of the Bible are written to those who know and believe in God. They are written to us as Christians. Other parts are written more broadly. It's important to note that this passage is one that is written to the church, to those who are following Jesus. And so if you find yourself here this morning unsure of what you believe, I'd encourage you to look at it, to listen in to this message to Christians, and find a compelling image of God's people, God's church, that I think is better even than the best that we might experience of God's church here in our time. This is us. Our sermon series, but also an NBC original series. Some of you may have watched it, as my wife Mimi and I did. In it, the Pearson family wrestles with what it means to be a family. It's realistic, which means that it's messy. It shows love that crosses various barriers. It shows the joys and defeats of life that all of us as humans face, and perhaps for those who are Pittsburgh Steelers fans, that you face a little bit more. Mimi and I watched it with our good friends Steve and Susan, whose adult children have flown the nest, and like we've learned from many of you, we learned from them some lessons about parenting because they'd been through it before. One of the value of reading the New Testament letters is we can learn from Christians who have been through it before. And the it that they've been through and are going through when Paul writes to them is a scenario where they're experiencing division. There's cultural division, but it actually is division that's happening within the church. We'll get into that more in a moment. The concerns that they're wrestling with are helping them to understand what it means to be the family of God and what it is that children of God need. And in fact, the things that we as children of God need, very similar to the things that children need, are the things that all humans need. We'll take a look at three things that we need that I think our passage highlights for us that are timeless. You're likely aware that we have a new bishop in our diocese, and the bishop writes a regular uh, email letter to our diocese, that is our collection of churches, and in his note from this week, he told a story of a mother who had a son who was very hyperactive. He'd been diagnosed with ADD, he uh, was prone to having these, uh, these fits of explosive reactions. They didn't know what to do. They were at their wit's end. They'd tried discipline. They'd tried therapy. They'd tried medication. And one day, as he was having one of these explosive fits, she threw up her arms in desperation. And she wrapped them around her son and held him in a loving embrace. She sang to him. She whispered words of comfort and affirmation. And she held him until he gradually quieted. 
As a parent of young toddlers, I've seen my wife Mimi employ this strategy. And what it has shown me is that no amount of discipline or rule setting or punishment replaces the power of a parent's love. I think we actually have a picture of that in our gospel reading. You can imagine what that embrace of the father to the prodigal son might have been like. That he who had gone far off, that came back ready to to explain himself, almost hyperactive in his willingness and desire to explain himself to his dad, and he's quieted by the father's embrace. Paul writes to the Galatians that we were held captive under the law, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. And what both the illustration of the prodigal and also this passage point us to is that we do need laws, but that we need God's love more. Now, a legal guardian is one who is legally charged with certain responsibilities uh, in their care of a child. Care, custody, control, they are things which are articulated, uh, perhaps with a little bit of legal jargon, uh, in a bullet point type of format. They are probably an articulation that is very different from how a parent would describe their love and their role for their child. Yes, the parent provides some of those same basics on the bullet point list, but hopefully what they are expressing is much more qualitative of their loving relationship for their child than it is a quantitative list of legal basics. Paul says that the law was like that bullet point list. We actually recited some of the bullet points together. We would call it the the Decalogue, the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And it is a good thing it provided care for the vulnerable in God's law beyond the 10 commandments. It provided guidelines and rules to control the behavior of God's people, to teach them and guard them. But God's people needed more than rules. God's people needed more than a guardian. The Greek word there actually might mean something more like a, like a coach or somebody who supervises. Some of you know that I uh, love skiing. And there's a big moment in the, the skiing world this past week when Michaela Schifrin, a 28-year-old American skier, became the winningest World Cup skier of all time. 87 World Cup victories at the age of 28. It's an incredible accomplishment. She stood after receiving her 87th championship uh, accolades, and she said in that moment she realized why the moment was so significant. And it wasn't the 86 victories that came before it. It wasn't the accolades of the fans and the cheers. It was because she looked out and she saw her brother and she saw her mom in the crowd. Now, Michaela's mom is actually her coach. But in that moment, a coach's training and the guidelines that her mom had given her didn't matter. What mattered was the love of a parent in a knowing gaze at a a crucial moment in her career. A good family has good rules, but good rules are not the point of a good family. For those who are parents, you can likely attest that the hope is not that you have to endlessly remind your kids of the rules. It's that eventually they will be desiring to be obedient 
out of their love for you and what you have taught them instead of just remembering the rules. The hope of every parent is that the rules aren't needed. The same is true for God's people. God's laws were helpful for his people and they are helpful for us, but God's hope, and this is affirmed by what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount as he reframes God's law, is that God's law would actually result in heart change. That we wouldn't need to remember the rules because we would actually be transformed to live them out in our lives. God's law, as Paul describes it, is the guardian, the teacher, the guidelines. God's law also reminds us that we fall short of those rules, that we are all sinners. We fall short of God's standard. There's a word that is the last word of of this section of Paul's letter, translated promise. The word in Greek is epangelion. might sound similar to euangelion, which is the word for good news. Eu means good. The pronoun ep means upon. So it's good news given to someone, given upon someone. God's good news that he gives to you, that he puts on you, is that you receive the promise of a loving Heavenly Father. The good news is that even when we don't live up to the standards of the law, to the rules of the family, God's love supersedes our failure. I am always careful to use these illustrations because of our proximity, and hopefully I don't go to the well too often, but remember the Titans is a favorite movie. It takes place at the recently integrated then T.C. Williams High School just around the corner from us, and it tells the story of the football team, previously led by Gary Bertier, who was the team captain, who's white, and now the new head coach played by Denzel Washington, Herman Boone. They're getting ready to go to training camp early in the movie, and Coach Boone says to Gary, the uh, perhaps a little bit arrogant and defeated because of the new coach star player, and he says, Gary, your parents here? Yes. Good. He nods to Gary's mom, and he says, take one last look at her. Because once you step on that bus, you ain't got your mama anymore. You got your brothers on the team, and you got your daddy. And Gary, you know who your daddy is, right? Gary, when I ask you a question, who's your daddy? You. And whose team is this, Gary? Is this your team, or is this your daddy's team? Yours. Now get on the bus. Put your jacket on first and get on the bus. I like that scene because Gary, in his insolence, is not that different from us. And he needs a reminder of who's in charge of the team. He needs a reminder of who will shape his identity and that of his teammates, of who he's supposed to follow. He needs, in short, what we need as Christians. We need to remember whose we are in order to better know who we are. Our identity is shaped by knowing who created us, named us, and gives us our being. Paul, in verse 26, writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Our passage is telling us whose we are by reminding us who we are. 
that we are sons of God in Christ Jesus. It's important that this is a status that is given in present tense. In other words, this isn't the future promise that someday you'll be children of God. This isn't a a conditional phrase that if you behave, you will be a child of God. You are a child of God. In a good family, you're not accepted as a family member just because you're doing great, because you're following the rules. You're accepted as a member of the family because of your very being and because of who your parents are. And the same is true for Christians. We're not the church because we're doing great. We're the church because we are God's children. Now, two notes about this, uh, this verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And the first is that this very specific gender metaphor is not meant to be exclusive. There are some translations that actually change it, so it doesn't say you are sons of God, it says that you are children of God. But that actually misses out on the point on how radical a statement Paul is making. Because in Paul's day and age, daughters did not inherit. It's the same as when Jesus tells the the parable of the prodigal son. We don't know if there were daughters in the picture, but the point in that story was only the sons were inheriting. So when Paul says, you are all, plural you, y'all, are sons of God, he's saying each of you, male and female, are rightful inheritors of God's promises. You are all children of God, not just those prized by the particular moment and particular culture. A second note is that when it says that we are sons of God, and that therefore God is our father, it is not to say that God is like our dads, just better. Now, my dad was here at the first service, uh, and I didn't tell him I was going to bring him up, but I gave him one of the best gifts I've ever given on, uh, I think it was Father's Day 1992. Now, we would call these dad hats now, then we just called them hats. They were polyester, they had a rope, they had a flat brim and a tall crown. And eight-year-old Peter thought it was a great idea to make his dad a gift, but I didn't particularly like the sentiment of Hallmark cards that claimed world's best dad. I thought that it was more accurate to write in neon puffy paint, 100% dad. I don't know if it was because I didn't think my dad was the world's best. I I love my dad and I love him now. 100% dad. God is not a fair basis of comparison for even the best of dads. And the point of many biblical metaphors is that you have to understand which direction the metaphor goes. We're not to understand God's character by looking at our dad and saying, well, he's kind of like that, just take out the bad parts and make him better. The direction of the metaphor is the other way around. And this is true for men and women, for dads, for moms, because scripture uses both mother language and father language to describe God's character. But the point is that in your role as a mother or a father, the inspiration for your role comes from the example of God. It's not that God is looking at you and saying, eh, I can do a little better than that. So beyond the family name that's given us, beyond our father, God, we're given an identity that is symbolized 
it says in verse 27, by baptism. Baptism is the the mark of the family, the tradition of the family. When we have a, a baptism service here in the church, it's a welcoming of a new member of the family. And there's a role when we have that baptism service for all of us, that everyone has a speaking part as we welcome together the newly baptized. And, like any good child after a bath, the parent makes sure that they are then clothed. Having a two-year-old son, that is a tricky task. In baptism, we are then told, in the New Testament, uses this image of putting on clothes. And putting on clothes is speaking of putting on the character of Christ. Verse 27, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Like a little child putting on dress-up clothes to imitate someone, we are to put on Christ's character as we seek to imitate him. The passage goes on with perhaps the most misunderstood verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This reminds us that even though we have distinctives, we are not to be divided in the church. And it doesn't take much looking around, both outside the church and inside the church, to know that division is evidence of our sin. Just like a family, we're prone to fight like siblings. We're prone to think that we are superior to others. We're prone to think that our way is the best way. Our people are the best people. Our church is the best church. Our status, our zip code, our you fill in the blank is the best. I still remember the membership class that Mimi and I sat in with our rector, David Glade, eight years ago. And he said something to the effect of, we're not so foolish as to think that the Anglican way is the only way to follow Jesus. But we do think it's a good, true, and reliable way. I think that's a good word. I think that's a, a good place for us to remember as Christians that there are no super Christians. There isn't a, a ranking of Christians. We're not to be smug or to be snobs. Now, Lent is a, a season of penitence, of reflection. And I read a prayer which I thought was a fitting, which asked a question that I thought was fitting for reflection. This is from St. Augustine's prayer book. Have you been prideful over race, family, position, personality, education, skill, achievements, or possessions? It's an exhaustive list. I won't make you raise hands to show your guilt. We're prone to pride, to that smugness, to that stomachness, because we forget whose we are. Poet Burton Braley writes, snobbery is the pride of those who are not sure of their position. In other words, they're insecure about who they are, insecure about whose they are. And so out of that insecurity, we try to one-up each other. But in our passage, Paul has reminded us of our position. Our position is that God is our Father. Our position is that we are to put on Christ. He's to be as close to us as our very clothes. And our position is that we're be, to be united 
with other Christians across the church. Now, Paul does highlight three common ways that people are divided, three barriers to this type of unity. He highlights culture, Jew nor Greek. He highlights class, slave nor free. And he highlights gender, male and female. Now, in Paul's day, the Galatian Jews were insisting that the Greek or Gentile followers of Jesus, this is the, the Jewish Christians, as it were, those who were Jews who were following Jesus, and the Greeks who had been converted and were following Jesus, and they were insisting that the Greeks be circumcised. They're insisting that they follow a specific cultural practice. And to them, elsewhere, Paul says that you don't need to take on that cultural practice in order to become a child of God. I imagine that was a word of relief. Paul also says that status shouldn't divide. Socioeconomics and class should not be a division within the church. And then lastly, remember what I said about uh, daughters not inheriting. Paul is making a, a clear statement here that gender is not to be a hierarchical division in the church. So across these distinctions, Paul says that we are one in Christ. But it's important to note that he didn't write this to suggest that we should be blind to the very real differences and distinctions that exist among Christians. He's not suggesting that gender is a social construct. He's not suggesting that there aren't profound differences in each of these categories. He's not dismissing ethnic and racial differences or a, a search for justice in those areas. But what he is saying is that even though we are not identical, even though we are not interchangeable, we are to be united. Now the passage introduces us to the law being the precursor of Christ. And in this way, I think that the gospel gives us both bad news and good news. But both the bad news and the good news are unifying. The bad news is that the law reminds us that we're all sinners. We've all strayed and fallen short of God. And so therefore, you can look to your neighbor, you can look behind you, you can look up here. We are all on equal footing, united in our need for a savior. And that's the good news, is that in Christ, we are all children of God. We are all saved by Jesus. Now, Galatians is just a snapshot of Paul's teaching and his ministry, but the, if you were to zoom out and look at Paul's ministry as it's recorded in the New Testament, you would see that his ministry actually bears out. He practices what he is preaching. His ministry gives us a kingdom vision that is as broad as what we see in Galatians, that he ministers across cultural barriers, that he ministers across socioeconomic barriers, slave and free. He ministers with partners who are men and women in his gospel ministry. And that's the expansive vision of Galatians, that we all, as Christians in the church, are children of the God who created the universe, that we're united with Christians across the world, across ethnic and cultural divisions, across time, to God's people from Abraham through Christ to the present day, and that we're united under God's love. 
which should be a comfort to us far more than the rules of the law. My family was on vacation this week, and <clears throat> Molly always likes to know who's giving the long talk on Sunday at church. And I told her it was Dad giving the long talk, and she said, I'd like to do it this week. And I said, oh, really? What are you going to preach on? thought for a second. She said, it's Sunday, so go to church. The end. You all might have appreciated the shorter sermon. Little did she know that that was actually the theme of our sermon series, the church, so she got it part right. The reason that we go to church on Sunday is because this is our family reunion. Now, some of you like mine, your family reunions might be as interesting as is diverse the church. You might have all of these potentials for barrier and division at your family reunion or even around your own dining room table and we might have it around the Lord's table. But the point is that when we pass the peace as family, as siblings in the family of God, as we join together around the family meal, that we find ourselves wrapped in God's loving embrace and encouraged to wrap each other, brothers and sisters, in that same embrace. Amen. Please rise and turning in your leaflet to... You can visit us in person at 9 and 11.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings or online via our Facebook live stream, or visit us at our website, ctkalexandria.org.